Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking at Galatians chapter 3 and verses 10 to 12. Galatians chapter 3 and verses 10 to 12. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Please hear with me then the reading of God's Word. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Thus far is a reading of God's word. Now, we've all heard the expression that you can't fit a square peg into a round hole. No matter how much one tries, no matter how much effort one puts into it, the result will be the same, right? Failure. You can, you know, twist and turn and go upside down and inside out every which way you can to try to get it in that round hole but you will never be able to do it. All of that effort will be in vain. All of that time spent will be wasted. Why? Because the square peg was never intended right, to fit into that round hole. Now the same is true, brothers and sisters, for the law. With respect to the believer's justification. This is what Paul has been saying. Right? One can work and work and work meticulously right, trying to follow the law at every step but yet still one will always be unable to merit the favor of God by it. Why? That's not the law's purpose. That's not what it was intended for. And yet isn't it true that that generation after generation indulges himself in that vain attempt to try to appease God through the works of the law? And yet, brothers and sisters, Anyone's belief that they can actually accomplish that is based on unfounded and unwarranted expectations. Right? The sinner has no reason to believe that they can actually accomplish that. In fact, doesn't Scripture tell us that the exact opposite is true? That, that no one will be able to do it. And yet, brothers and sisters, people do not give up trying, do they? Right? They don't give up banking their eternal existence on the prospect that in the end their good works of law-keeping will be sufficient to gain them access to the paradise of God. But, but how foolish is that? Right? How foolish is it to think that through the works of the law one can be justified? It's like trying to stick a square peg in a round hole. Right? It's foolish. It's like attempting to, to put out a, a fire by dousing it with gasoline. It's like trying to to start your car when you have an empty gas tank by by putting sugar inside. If we've seen somebody do that, we would look at them rather strangely and oddly, wouldn't we? Because what would we be thinking? What they are doing will never allow them to accomplish what it is they are trying to accomplish. It will never allow them to do that. And that's essentially what people are trying to do when they are trying to be justified in the eyes of God right through the works of the law. Right? They're, they're using a method, a way, a means to be justified 
that will never work. And it will never bear out what it is you want it to bear out. Like gasoline to a fire or, or sugar to a gas tank. Things that cannot provide the benefit the user wants. So too then, what we need to see is that same is true for the law. Right? That the law is not the remedy to your justification. Right? The law will never give you the benefit that you wanted to have in seeking to be justified by. Why? Well, because our problem is the law. Our problem is our relationship to the law. And so, brothers and sisters, the law can never be the remedy to the law. The law can never be the remedy to the law, but like with many things, there is a remedy, isn't there? There is a remedy. If one wants to put out a fire, you don't use gas, you use water. If one wants to start their car and it's an empty tank, you don't use sugar, you use gasoline. If one desires to be justified before God in His sight, it is not done through doing the works of the law, but it is done through believing. Believing on the name of the Son. Right? Doing keeps you under the curse. Believing the Son of God is the only way that we escape the curse. And so in our text today then, Paul is, is trying to demonstrate this very point I've been making. That the law is that square peg. That the Judaizers, and that many in the churches of Galatia now are, are trying to fit in that round hole, which is how one is justified before God. Our right standing before God. And he shows them why all attempts to do so will be futile. And ultimately, they're going to be futile. Why? Because it was never the law's purpose. Right? It's not the purpose of the law. If the law could make us right before God, Christ would not have to come, would He? But the law can't make right, which is why Christ came. And why can't the law make right? Well, that's what Paul is going to go on to tell us here in verse 10. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, everyone be, every, written, excuse me, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Alright, this is going to be then our first point that we want to consider this morning and we'll call it the, the curse upon all. The curse upon all. Now, what we have here is a quotation. An Old Testament quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26. And in the context of, of Deuteronomy 27, what you have going on there is a rehearsal of the covenant blessings and curses that, that Moses here is conducting with the people. And he's telling them that once they enter into the promised land, once they enter into the land of Canaan, what God requires of them is for some of them to stand on Mount Gerizim and to declare the blessings of the covenant and that some will stand on, on uh, Mount Ebal and they will declare the cursings of the covenant. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 27, verses 15 to 25. But then when we get to verse 26, it's really a summary. It summarizes them all. And there we read this. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. And the people shall say, Amen. So the question is, why does Paul now take this this text and, and apply it to the saints in the churches of Galatia. Well, to show them uh, that failure to keep God's law results in what? Results in it results in a curse, right? In cursings. He uses it to show that anyone who does not fully keep the law is cursed, and because no one has kept the law, all lie under the curse. 
Is this not the exact same thing that James tells us in his epistle? James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of them all. Right? He's saying if you do not fulfill the, la- the, the demands of the law, you who seek to be justified by it, you are under a curse. Right? You violate one of the laws and you have placed yourself under the sentence of condemnation. And how sad then when we think about it. Right? How many are walking around today having proclaimed a sentence of condemnation upon themselves by seeking to be justified or made righteous by the law. Right? How many today are walking around with the curse of the law hanging upon their neck and they don't even know it? Right? They're, they're unaware of it. Unaware of the fact that to violate one of the commands, which all people have done, have disqualified us so that we can no longer fulfill the demands of the law. And now all stand condemned, all stand cursed by it. Now, a part of the problem, you know, why people think, though, that they can do this is because we have such a, a low view of God, or we have a low view of God's holiness in the world. Uh, we have a, a, a low view of God's perfect standard of righteousness. Uh, we, we don't think that much about our sin, as if it's that grievous or that heinous or that evil in the sight of God. Think about it. How many people are of the opinion that, that we can just make up for our past transgressions with improved behavior? Right? I can just make it up to God through, through being better. Right? Although I sinned against God in the past through, through moral reformation, right, I can make myself right now before God by, by correcting my wrongdoings. Right? That's how, how much of the world thinks. Even people who sit in Christian churches today. But what they don't understand and what Paul here is trying to communicate to us is this, that the law demands not partial obedience. The law demands comprehensive obedience. Perfect, personal, perpetual, if one is to fulfill them and stand before God on the basis of those works. But the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, that because of the fall, because of our own sin, we've all lost the ability to obey the law in this manner. Right? None of us can do it anymore. We have all sinned. We've all lost communion with God. We all stand under the wrath of God and the, and the curse of God. Now here Paul talks about the curse. For all who rely upon the law are under a curse. Right? Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law. So, what is this curse though that Paul speaks of? Right? What is this curse that, that we are all under? Like ultimately, it's eternal despair and misery. Right? That's, that's the curse that we are all under. Eternal despair and misery. And it occurs and is felt by sinners to varying degrees in this life, but also for many it will be felt right, in the life to come. It will be felt in the life to come. I mean, think about all that the curse has produced in us and about us and around us. Think about how the curse, that despair, that misery has has affected each one of us prior coming to Christ. And even now, right? how, how it affected our minds. 
How we were ignorant of, of true knowledge of God. How we were ignorant of, of true knowledge of ourselves. How we were ignorant of the true way of happiness. Uh, remember in our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, what Solomon keeps harping on week after week after week. Right? That, that man is um, unaware of how to come by true peace and comfort and, and happiness and satisfaction in this world as we live under the sun. Right? That's a part of the curse. That eternal misery and despair that, that we are all under through sin. A part of the curse also includes our, our inclination to all types of sin now. Right? Our inclination to all types of sin. Uh, the curse includes our, our hardness of heart. Right? Our hardness of heart towards God. Our hardness of heart towards the will of God, the law of God, towards our neighbor. Right? The curse includes then uh, the fact that, that because we have depraved hearts, that everything that flows from them likewise is depraved. Right? So that we are now uh, wicked, evil, uh, fallen trees apart from Christ. And every fruit we bear is a sinful and dead work. Right? What else is a part of the curse? Well, the curse has brought us into bondage. Right? The, the curse has brought us under the power of the devil, who now works mightily in the hearts of unbelievers. Right? A part of the curse is, is our sufferings that we experience. Right? A part of the curse is, is disease and illness and calamities that, that happen all around us. Part of the curse is, is death. Right? That separation of, of body and soul. But a part of the curse likewise is the, is the second death. Right? Which many will experience. Which is, which is separation of both body and soul from the gracious and loving presence of the Lord. An entrance into a, a full apprehension of the wrath of God upon them for all of eternity. Right? These things are the, are the sum of the curse that Paul here is describing that, that all people by nature are under who seek to be justified by the works of the law. Right? This is what every single person, Paul says, deserves who does not abide by everything written in the law and do them. Now, before we think that there then is something wrong with the law because we can't do it, we need to remember what Paul says about the law. Right? In Romans chapter 7, what does Paul say? The, the law is spiritual. The law is holy. The law is good. So let us see that the law is not the issue. The law is not the problem. The law is not deficient. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, brothers and sisters, we need to see the problem lies with us. We are the problem. We are deficient. The law is perfect. We are imperfect. Incapable then of keeping the law. And because we can't keep it, brothers and sisters, perfectly, perpetually, personally, it can't bless us. Because we can't keep it, it can't bless. The law only pronounces a, a curse against us and that is a universal curse. Right, this is what we read in a text like Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None are righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way. And so if we want to get back to God, if you want to have that communion with God restored, the way you do it is not through the law. The law doesn't bring forgiveness. The law does not grant life. To use it in that way is, a, is to use it in an unlawful way. It's to use the law unlawfully. Remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right? The Judaizers are using it unlawfully. They were making it of no benefit, of no good to themselves or others. Right? In their use of it, they're falling deeper and deeper under the curse. And yes, the law was given for many purposes and for many reasons. But righteousness before God through law-keeping was not one of them. And so in teaching that, that obedience was a means to reconciliation with God, they obscured the grace of God, which is a great evil. Right? In teaching that one could be justified through, through faith and works, they were making null and void the sufferings of Christ for sin, thinking that they could be saved at least in part by their own merits. Brothers and sisters, why would anyone, why would anyone hearing this want to put themselves in this sort of relationship with God where in order to stand before Him, we say, God, I want to do the law perfectly so that I might do this. Why would anyone want to set themselves up in that sort of relationship? We need to see, brothers and sisters, that what we read in Isaiah 64, verse 6, is true of us all. There we read, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We need to see that that is true of our, of our very best works. And after showing this then to the Judaizers and the saints in the churches of Galatia, through the use of Deuteronomy 27-26, Paul then goes on to say in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous should live by faith. This leads us to our second point then, this morning, which is this. The true faith of all the elect. The true faith of all the elect. Now as was the case with our first point, we likewise see here that we have an Old Testament quotation. In verse 11, Uh, that quotation comes from uh, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. There we read this, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, prior to this declaration, Habakkuk Habakkuk is predicting uh, the judgment against Israel, that the the Chaldeans are going to come and are going to punish Judah for failing to keep God's law. But ultimately, this judgment will be a test of faith for those who believe. And so he says that the righteous will live by faith. Right? It's a, it's a call to, to trust in the Lord that, that through these trials they would not lose faith. Right? But they would continue to believe that God would destroy Babylon. And that God would, would deliver them one day. And that even in the midst of these, these dangerous trials that they will be in, that He will protect them and that He will keep them safe. And ultimately, they will end with their enjoyment of eternal life. And so, Paul quotes from Habakkuk now to demonstrate that, that there are two totally different ways to live. Right? The first way is what we just read in verse 10. Right? The first way is to, is to live is, is that method spoken of in verse 10. 
which is to live by, by faith, to seek to be justified by, excuse me, to live by works, to seek to be justified by works. The other here we are told in verse 11 is faith. And if we live by faith, then what does that mean? Well, it means that we trust that God will justify us through faith in Christ. Right? But you can't have both ways. It's either one or the other. Either you trust in yourself to justify yourself, whether in part or in whole, or you trust in God to justify you through faith in Christ. And what a relief, isn't it? For those who, who know they believe the latter. Right? What a relief that is to our souls. What a relief it was to someone like the great German reformer Martin Luther. And this is something that he himself came to realize. And it was a thing of beauty when you read about the history of Luther. You remember Luther was a monk. And as a monk, he thought that the way of the monastic life, right, living in the monastery there, would be a way in which you could find peace with God. Luther is quoted as saying this, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was me. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. If I had kept it any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and reading and other work. But one of the things we're told in, in the books of history is that one of the things that opened Luther's eyes to no longer work but believe was Habakkuk chapter 2. This very text that Paul's quoting today. Uh, Luther's son tells a story of his father in which he says that as Luther was climbing the stairs, of uh, St. John's Lateran Church, uh, which people did because the Pope promised uh, an indulgence, right, forgiving of sin for anyone who would make that, that pilgrimage up those steps. But they would do so on their knees. Right? They'd be climbing up them on their knees. In between, as they're climbing, they would stop and pray. And they would, they would kiss the steps because they believed that these were the steps that Jesus walked up on the day that He was sentenced to die. And so, as Luther is doing this, right, what we are told is, is all of a sudden, by the Spirit of God, right, what comes to mind is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And as he's making that, that journey up the stairs on his knees, praying and crying and kissing the steps, all of a sudden he says, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And it is then that we are told that Luther felt as if he was a new man. Right? And this is why, brothers and sisters, right, Paul is, is, is uh, giving this verse likewise to the saints here in the churches of southern Galatia. Right? To, to let the saints know that, that new life and everlasting life only comes by faith. Right? Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ's righteousness. Right? Faith that, that in Christ's righteousness alone you will be justified and find acceptance before God. Right? Receiving, though, that, that righteousness, not as something inherent to yourself, but something alien to yourself. It's an imputed righteousness, right? Credited to you. 
And brothers and sisters, and this is how, though, we live then the entirety of our Christian existence. Right? It's by faith in Christ. Right? From the beginning to the end, this is the only way the Christian can ever have peace and comfort in our life. Right? That you live upon Christ. That Christ be your hope of living. That your holy life you live now going forward is not founded upon your works, but founded upon Him. And even when everything then is against you, when your health fails you as you begin to age, as your friends leave you, as the church disappoints you, as your troubles and woes accumulate and mount on top of you, you can still look to the Word of God and the promises contained therein that you have forgiveness of sin and everlasting life through faith in Christ. That's what it means to live by faith in Christ. You are declared righteous by faith in Christ, but everything you do thereafter, you do as one who has been declared righteous by faith in Christ. Everything you do thereafter, you do as a, a justified person. You are preserved until the end as a justified person. In the, by faith in the Son. This is why William Perkins says this. He says, And therefore the, the second justification that is said to be of your works is mere fiction. Alright? There are many out there today who, who would like to claim for themselves the label of reformed. But they hold that you initially justify but through your faithfulness, right, you will be declared righteous in the end. You'll be finally justified in the end. And Perkins, along with all of the Orthodox, say this is mere fiction. It's fable. It's myth. It's lie. Why? Because you've already been justified. Before you ever started doing the work, you've already been justified. You've already been made righteous having the, the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. So what do you think that you can do to add to that? Nothing. Nothing at all. Remember what Paul said earlier then about the Christian life. In chapter 2, verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Your good works, your sanctification, all flow out of justification, which means what? If they flow out, they can never be the cause of. Right? Sanctification is never the cause of justification. Right? Whether that's in the beginning of your Christian life or at the end when Christ returns. But I want us to see then how, how doing and believing are polar opposites when we speak about the doctrine of justification. But, believing and doing are not always opposites. They're not always opposites in the Christian life. right? The, the righteous, as we see, will live out their faith. right? We're going to live out our faith doing what God commands. I mean, how could you not? Christ obeyed the law perfectly. The Spirit of Christ lives in you. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son. Right? We're going to be imitating the life of Christ. We're going to be obeying the commands of Christ. It's only those who have a false, a feigned, a fake profession who can say that they live by faith but do not follow the commands of Christ. 
This is why, though, brothers and sisters, all of us need to continue to bring ourselves before the law. Right? We must continue to bring ourselves before the law. Why? Because it humbles us, doesn't it? Right? It humbles us under the almighty hand of God and it shows to us this is God's perfect standard of righteousness. And even our evangelical obedience, right? that the obedience we can now render right? by the grace of God, it still falls miserably short of what God requires of us in the law. Which ought to do what? After we bring ourselves to the law, then we ought to fix our gaze upon Christ in the cross. Right? Because that's the only place that we find our, our remedy against our, our woeful sinfulness. Paul then goes on to say in verse 12, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. This will be our third point then this morning. And our concluding point, and we'll call it this, the incompatibility of the law and faith. The incompatibility of the law and faith. I feel like a, a broken record, but for the third time, just as with our first two points, our third point is a Old Testament quotation as well. This time, uh, Paul quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. There the Israelites are told, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. This is why Paul can say the law is not of faith. Because the law does not consist of Christ. The law does not consist of Christ. The law does not require faith. The law has nothing to do with believing and everything to do with doing and performing. Faith rests on the promise. The law is not the promise. The law requires work. Faith requires no work. These are important distinctions that we must continue to maintain and understand as we think about that law-gospel distinction. The law says if you want life in this system, then you must perform the law perfectly. Right? But the Gospel says that life in, in this way is to the one who believes and does nothing, right? but simply opens their hands like a beggar and receives the free gift of Christ, recognizing that we can't perform everything that the law demands, but that there is one who has. Not understanding these things, brothers and sisters, has brought the, soul, the ruin of many souls to bear, hasn't it? Right? And not believing that the true gospel, right? the gospel that's founded upon Christ and Christ alone, but rather believing some mingled gospel that's mixed with works. For our justification, the, the true gospel unencumbered with anything other than Christ is what sinners need. That's all they need is the the gospel unencumbered by the law to hear Christ proclaimed. It is the gospel that that clearly reveals Christ. It is the gospel that reconciles sinners to God. It is the gospel that discloses the covenant of grace. It is the gospel that reveals Christ to be the one that we need and the reasons why we need Him. It is the, the gospel that reveals to us that He is our all-sufficient Savior. It is the Gospel that the Holy Spirit uses as that instrument to convey to us the grace of God. It is the Gospel that the Spirit uses 
to implant that principle of faith in, in you and I. Right, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 10? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. It is by hearing that Gospel, laying hold to it by faith, that the Spirit continues to apply Christ and His righteousness and the fullness of Him to your hearts each and every day. Maybe most importantly, the Gospel is the means whereby the glory of of Christ and God in Him is most clearly manifested before the world. Right? It is the, the Gospel which most brightly displays the glory of Christ. And so it's this Gospel, brothers and sisters, that we must not allow anything to be, to be mingled with. Right? But rather we need to, to not allow anything to detract from this Gospel, which the law does when we, when we add it as a means of righteousness before God. Right? The, the, the law is important. But I want us to understand that. Right? The law is important. The law must be taught. The law must be preached. For it convinces men of their sin and misery. But when we talk about justification, the law, the door to the law must be closed. Right? And the Gospel then ought to be preached all the more. Right? For it is the Gospel that announces glad tidings. Uh, that is the sweetest sound the ear of a sinner could ever hear. Right? No benefits were ever so good as those that are declared to us in the Gospel. No message is as important as the Gospel which declares Christ to be the all in all for everyone who believes. And in the Gospel we find the remedy to the curse of the law. In the Gospel we find the remedy to the wrath of God. In the Gospel we find our salvation from sin which comes not by the law, Paul says, but by faith in Christ. Right? The law, brothers and sisters, is not of faith, Paul says. But thank God that the Gospel is. Right? The law cannot make anyone righteous who seeks to be made righteous by it. They will remain under the curse of the law forever. But the Gospel brings Christ to us. And the Gospel invites us to receive the forgiveness of sin and His righteousness through faith alone. And promises that when you do, that curse of the law will be lifted up off of you. But only because it was placed upon Christ right, in your stead, who can now lift that curse because everything that the law required of you, Christ has accomplished. Right? Every precept, every law, every rule, every statute, every command, everything God bound man to do, Christ did. Christ did. Not for His own sake, but for ours. And so let us see, brothers and sisters, why such an emphasis is placed on the Gospel and upon faith apart from the works of the law. I want us to see something, right? Faith does nothing. Faith does nothing, but because of Christ, it takes possession of everything. Faith does nothing but take possession of everything in Christ. And that includes the obedience of Christ, doesn't it? We take possession of the obedience of Christ, which God demands of us through the law, which we were unable to do, but which Christ has done for us. I hope everyone here today sees, if you say you believe the Gospel, why you ought to love the Gospel so. 
Right? Why you ought to desire to think about the Gospel. Why you ought to desire to meditate upon the Gospel. And remind yourself of the Gospel. And pray that God would grow you in the grace of the Gospel. And you would come to a greater knowledge of the Gospel and He who is proclaimed in the Gospel. And that, brothers and sisters, you would never allow anyone to, to move you away from the hope that is in the Gospel. And for those of you today who do not believe, I want you to, to understand how dangerous it is to be a, a stranger to the Gospel. Right? That you will still be in your, your sin and misery. You are still under the, the curse. And yet, I want you to understand this as well, that when God graciously grants you the opportunity to hear the Gospel proclaimed, it is your duty to accept and to receive its gracious offerings to you, to lay aside, to forsake your own righteousness and to lay hold solely to the righteousness of Christ as your divine Redeemer who gives unto you eternal life. Paul in Acts 13, verses 30 and 39 says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Christ Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by, by the law of Moses. And let us see the great burden of the law placed upon the back of sinners. And may it cause us to praise God for His immeasurable and undeserved mercy towards us in sending His Son to die to redeem us, to be that, that great burden bearer who has lifted the curse, not for the one who works, but only for the one who believes in His name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You, Lord, for a reminder of both law and Gospel. Uh, we thank You, Lord, that you remind us how fall, uh, how um, short we have fallen, Lord. Um, how much we have sinned and transgressed Your law. How uh, we are so deserving of Your of Your cursings and, and of death. But we thank You, Lord, that You You buffer that message with the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is so sweet to the ears of Your people. It is uh, our joy as we gather this morning. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help us to uh, never forget the Gospel. That, Lord, You would uh, keep our eyes fixated upon the cross in Christ. And, Lord, we pray that as the Gospel has gone forth from this uh, building today, that those who have not believed, Lord, that You would uh, cause them to see um, their need for the Savior. That we have... Uh, uh, a deficiency, uh, a terminal illness within us, a depraved heart that can never uh, fulfill the demands of the law. But Lord, we thank You that You have given to us Christ who has, who has done it all. And Lord, may You cause all here today to uh, look away from self and look to Him uh, for our sole reason, for our righteous standing before God. And so Lord, we come before You this morning and we ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.